Amen. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word and turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, 29 through 35. Matthew 24, 29 through 35. We lift up a risen Savior who is coming again. Pastor Bruce will be preaching on the second coming. Matthew 24, 29 through 35. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the very doors. Assuredly, I say to you, This generation will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Let's pray. Father, we are sobered by the seriousness and the reality of your coming again. And the whole creation will shake. And we will encounter you face to face. Father, I pray that you would anoint our pastor and anoint our hearts to hear from you. That we would be warned and we would be ready. And we would worship you as we have just done. But we will do it in your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, our world is filled with attractions and events. Let me ask you, what's the greatest attraction or the greatest event you've ever seen in your lifetime? Or maybe the greatest attraction or event you've ever uh, been a part of or you've heard about throughout history. Uh, You know, some people might say here in our country that one of the great attractions is the Super Bowl. As you know, our world stops, at least here in America, for that Sunday, and all the attention is focused on the Super Bowl. Uh, Some people might say that one of the greatest attractions ever to happen every four years is the Olympics, whether it be the Summer Olympics or the Winter Olympics. Uh, Some will say this coming summer it will be the upcoming FIBA uh, World Cup soccer event that will take place in South Africa. Any soccer fans here? Let me tell you, the world will say that is an awesome attraction and event. I will admit, though, uh, my personal, one of the greatest events, attractions I've ever been a part of, in fact, uh, you'll see a picture of it coming up on the, on the screen now, is when Pastor Chris and I had the opportunity to take a survey trip to the Philippines. At the tail end of that, we also had the opportunity to go to Hong Kong. And we were in Hong Kong for a few days before we went to Beijing, China. And while we were in Hong Kong... 
And we had no idea this was going to happen. It happened to be China's National Day. They're one of their holidays. And let me tell you, we were there on Victoria Harbor, had no idea this was coming. And all of a sudden, an onslaught of people. And when I say people, we're talking 100,000 people. And we stood there and then watched one of the most spectacular fireworks displays I have ever seen in my life. It was about 20 to 30 minutes. And I know you're like, oh, how could it be? Well, if you've ever seen Worlds of Fun's fireworks displays or Royals on a Friday night, you know, and at the end, they do the grand finale. You just take one of the grand finales, and that was the whole thing there at Victoria Harbor. I mean, was that right, Pastor Chris? Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it was a sight to behold. Awesome, awesome attraction and event. They do this every year. If you ever get the chance to go in the fall, you will see it. But it's spectacular. Listen, as that fireworks display was, it will be nothing compared to the blades of glory when Jesus Christ comes again. In fact, mark it down. The second coming of Christ, the greatest coming event of all time, is just that. It will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. It will be the most spectacular attraction, the most spectacular event of all time. The second coming of Jesus should thrill our hearts like no other. It ought to hold us on the edge of our seats in eager anticipation of that day. Who cannot wait for it? I mean, I hope you're looking forward to it. It is an event so important that there are over 300 prophecies relating to it in the Bible. David Jeremiah notes that for every biblical prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight concerning His second coming. It's the final thought in the Bible when Jesus says in Revelation 22.20, Surely I am coming quickly. The second coming is the climax of our redemption. It is the final proof of God's sovereignty over history. Now we should note here that while Christians have always believed in the return of Christ, they have disagreed over the details. Now that's nothing new uh, in history. It's nothing new to perhaps some of you. For example, there is debate over how the rapture of the church relates to the second coming of Christ. Some people see them as the same event. Others may see them as separated by three and a half years or separated by seven years, referring to the tribulation. And many Christians are like the man who said he is pan-trib. In reference to, you may be believe that there is pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or no-trib. But this guy said he's pan-trib, meaning he believes all things are going to just, quote, pan out in the end. I like that. He's certainly right that God's plan, God's plan of His Son returning to this earth will ultimately come to pass. Now, many Bible scholars, many Bible students, and myself included, believe that Christ's return will occur, if you could say it this way, in two separate stages. This is usually called the pre-tribulation rapture view. In fact, you'll notice in your notes there's a chart there. And it kind of gives you a visual timeline of what we're talking about here this morning, in fact, throughout this series. And in the pre-trib view, we believe Christ will come before the tribulation occurs, where He will resurrect the dead believers, and He will rapture or lift off 
the face of the earth, those living believers. Those believers who are raised or raptured will be taken to heaven where their works will be judged. This judgment seat of Christ will be followed by the marriage supper of the Lamb. And while this is all going on in heaven, the horrors of the seven-year tribulation will unfold on the earth. The Antichrist will be revealed and he will commit what we learned last Sunday, the abomination of desolation at the midpoint of the tribulation. In a sense, signaling this great tribulation, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. At that time, though, at the end, Jesus will return from heaven and he will do so with his saints and angels at his side and he will defeat the Antichrist and he will establish his kingdom here on earth. His coming at the end of the tribulation is often called the glorious appearing according to what Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Now, at this point, we probably ought to stop and answer a question. And that question is, what's the difference between the rapture and Christ's glorious appearing? Or if we take the phrases in that chart, what is the difference between the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus Christ? Well, let me give you uh, one simple answer, and then I'll give you some more descriptive answers of that. You'll see in your notes, in the rapture, Christ comes for His saints, for the believers. At the glorious appearing, or at the return of Christ, He comes with His saints. And that's the basic difference to understand. In one, He comes for them. In the other, he comes with them. Here are some other differences. The rapture takes place in the air. The glorious appearing takes place on the earth. In the rapture, believers go from earth to heaven at the glorious appearing. We come from heaven to earth with Christ. At the rapture, Jesus comes to reward his people. At the glorious appearing, he comes to judge the earth. The rapture takes place before the tribulation, which is known, as I said, the pre-tribulation view. The glorious appearing takes place after the tribulation. There are no signs of the rapture. While there are many signs, as we have been looking at it, studying in Matthew 24, of the glorious appearing or the second coming, the return of Christ. And even though there are or there is disagreement surrounding many of the details of Christ's return. Christians throughout history have agreed on this one fact. Jesus is coming again. Amen? Are you excited about that? Should we do a little rah-rah cheer for that? Right? Get excited? I hope you are. And it's okay to do a little hurrah for the coming of Christ and to anticipate it and look forward to it. Jesus himself declared in John chapter 14, verse 3, Hey, I will come back, he told his disciples. Three times in Revelation 22, Christ said, I am coming soon. And in Acts 1, verse 11, makes it clear, Jesus himself will one day return to the earth. In fact, it will be this same Jesus who came the first time that will be coming the second time. Kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? When Jesus comes again, let me tell you, it will be an event or an attraction more marvelous, more startling, and more amazing than anything that this world has seen in the last 2,000 years. No event may seem less likely to modern men and women 
And yet no event is more certain in light of God's word. So let's look at it this morning. With this in mind, the second coming of Jesus Christ, that is our focus as we now continue in this series on the last day. And our focus is on this one event, the second coming. So notice, number one, anticipate the phenomenon of the second coming. And let me tell you, it will be just that. Anticipate the phenomenon. Jesus gives us a vivid picture of the moment when he will return to the earth. So when will Jesus return? In fact, we'll begin to answer that question a little bit next Sunday. Is he he really going to give us a date? No, I'm not going to give you a date. But come back next Sunday. We'll talk about the return of Christ in more detail. But notice what Jesus says in the very first part of verse 29 in our text of Matthew 24. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, in this context, the tribulation of those days, I believe, refers to the coming seven-year tribulation that immediately precedes the coming of Christ to the earth. Think about it. Jesus has just finished warning his disciples about the Antichrist who will commit this abomination of desolation leading to a time of trouble never before seen on this earth and never to be seen again. And when the tribulation of those days comes to its fearful climax, Jesus says, then I will return. Now, there are several events now surrounding this e- his return that Jesus goes on to describe in the next verses here, verses 29 through 31. Look at some of these events with me. The first event is this. The scene in the heavens will be terrifying. The scene in the heavens will be terrifying. Last week we saw that Christ promised that his coming would be obvious to everyone. It would be visible to everyone. In fact, we see that Christ says in verse 27, for as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, everybody's going to know it. Nobody's going to miss it. And that's one of the factors ensuring that no one misses the return of Christ. There will be this cosmic scene in the heavens. Cosmic signs will take place. Look what Jesus says in the rest of verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Basically, Jesus mentions four cosmic signs of his return. First, he says the sun will be darkened. In other words, it will be blotted out. It's light. It will not shine. Second, the moon will not give its light. Third, the stars will fall from the heavens or the sky. And fourth, the powers of heavens will be shaken. Now, can you imagine what this will be like? Now, it's important to note that these are literal events that will happen in the future. There's no reason to interpret these things as symbolically or allegorically. Jesus says the sun will somehow be darkened. Don't ask me how. Don't ask me how he will do it. I don't know. I know it just what it says somehow the moon will disappear somehow the stars will fall from the sky and every other heavenly body will be shaken out of his god appointed place and there's no reason to doubt that this will happen 
Listen, if the same God who created the heavens and the earth can do that, then why could He not do this as well? After all, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that Christ Himself is the one who holds all things together. In fact, it says the one who upholds all things by the word of His power. In other words, Christ is the glue of the universe. If Christ were to say the word today, the sun would be darkened, the moon would go black, and the stars would fall from the sky. For that matter, if Christ said the word, gravity would cease, and the universe would explode into a trillion pieces. And the only reason that things hold together right now in our world and across our universe is because of the sovereign word of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, let me tell you, folks, it will be the most amazing event in world history. And there's only one word to describe that moment when Jesus comes on the clouds. And that word is terrifying. Terrifying. If you want to, you can turn to Luke chapter 21. If not, you can listen to me as I read it. But in Luke 21, verses 25 and 26, this is Luke's account of the same all of the discourse of Jesus here. And this is what Luke says. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectations of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven will be shaken." Who knows what all the shaking of the heavens might entail, but one thing is for certain. It will be terrifying when it happens. In fact, it's interesting. Jesus mentions, he says that men's hearts will fail them from fear. Men's hearts will fail them from fear when this transpires, when this scene takes place, this event. In fact, that word fail comes from a Greek word that means to expire or to stop breathing. This means people will be so overwhelmed by this scene in the heavens that they will literally be scared to death. Pretty amazing. And of course, all these things are signs of God's judgment on the world. We know that because you can go to the Old Testament where the prophet Joel says in Joel 2.11, for the day of the Lord, and that's what this is, is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Someone once prayed, Lord, give us shaking if we need it. And let me tell you, in that day, the world will get the shaking it deserves because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. The second event that we learn is the sign in the sky will be unmistakable. The sign in the sky will be unmistakable. At this point, there will be one remaining sign to come. And it is the glorious appearing of Christ himself. Notice what Jesus says in verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, remember, this whole discourse, what is known as the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus is talking and answering a question his disciples asked, and they're sitting on the side of the mountain that is known as the Mount of Olives. And this whole discourse began when the disciples asked Jesus to tell them 
the sign of His coming and the sign of the end of the age. This is that sign. His coming is what signifies the end of the age, what is known as the end of the church age. If you go back to your chart, you will see that. It is the sign of signs. Jesus Himself will be the final sign of His glorious appearing. Now, again, how will people respond to all this? How will they respond when they see Jesus coming in a blaze of glory? Well, according to Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 through 17, most people will be stricken with such fear, as Luke has already told us, that they will say to the mountains and they will cry out to the rocks, and I quote, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? No wonder all the tribes of the earth will mourn, Jesus says, when they see him coming. Listen, they will mourn his coming for basically two reasons. One is they know he is coming in judgment. And two, they will mourn because they realize, I'm not ready. I'm not prepared. And it's too late now. The third event that we find surrounding the return of Christ is the supremacy of the Lord will be rather astonishing. The supremacy of the Lord will be astonishing. Look again at the end of verse 30. How does it end? How does Jesus describe His coming? He says He will come with what? With power and great glory. Now that is surely something of an understatement. Listen, His return will be the greatest display of power the earth has ever witnessed. Just listen to some of these passages in the Bible. One comes from the Old Testament. Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 4, describes it in these terms. He says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. And in that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved toward the north and half of it to the south. And then Revelation 19 gives a, another picture of this grand scene when Jesus comes to the earth. And it says in verses 11 through 16, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations." And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me tell you, that speaks to the supremacy and the majesty of Jesus Christ himself. And you say, well, man, who are those armies that will accompany Christ when He comes riding on that white horse. Let me tell you, those armies are you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. 
Man, we're part of that. Believers who are caught up alive with Christ at the rapture, as well as those who are raised from the grave, will be part of the entourage, if you will, of Christ when He comes riding down on that white horse and then fights in the battle of Armageddon. And notice that when Christ comes, He immediately executes vengeance on the Antichrist and the rest of the evil hordes of the earth. As for the Antichrist, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, the Lord will consume him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. Whoa! That is amazing. According to Revelation 19.21, the rest of the wicked are destroyed with the sword that proceeds from Christ's mouth, possibly signifying that he judges and slays them merely by speaking the word of God. And according to Revelation 19.20, both the beast and the false prophet are then cast alive into the lake of fire. Revelation 20 goes on and it tells us that the rest of the dead who are died in the judgment in the battle of Armageddon are kept in the grave throughout the millennial reign of Christ, which we reign with Him here on the earth. And then at the end of that millennial time frame, they will be resurrected for their judgment and then cast into the lake of fire. But before that happens, Christ will come with more than just overwhelming power. Let me tell you, Christ will come also with great glory, Jesus says. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. So yes, Christ comes in supremacy. But that supremacy includes His power. And He comes empowered to judge the world. But He also comes in His glory that God bestows on the Son. Perhaps the best way to understand the glory that Jesus will come is to compare the circumstances to, of His first coming, what we celebrate as Christmas, to the circumstances of His second coming. The first time Jesus came, He came unnoticed into the world. People missed it. They hardly blinked an eye. Except for a few shepherds who the angels came and talked to, the magi who were bright enough to follow the star, he went unnoticed. But folks, let me tell you, when he comes a second time, the whole world will take notice. In his first coming, Jesus humbled himself, being born in a stable, in a manger in Bethlehem. When he returns, he will come back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In His first coming, He endured the mockery of men and He was crucified on the cross. When He comes again, all mockery will cease for He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He came the first time as the Lamb of God for the purpose to be crucified on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins. But when He comes again, it will not be as the Lamb of God. It will be as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. When He came the first time, the world rejected Him as Messiah. But a day is coming when Paul tells us in Philippians, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord! 
at Christ's coming, you could write the word at His first coming. You could write over it, humility. And that's how Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2. Humility in His first coming. But folks, when He comes the second time, you could write across it in the headlines, glory. Because He will come in His glory. Though Jesus was once despised and rejected by men, he will one day return with power and great glory announced by the angels and accompanied by his saints. Now that is something to get excited about. Let me tell you, we cheer when the royals can win two games in a row. This is something to cheer about. We cheer over a Chiefs draft. I mean, I love the draft of Eric Berry. Bring it on. They're getting better defensively. But folks, this is something to cheer about. This is something to anticipate and get excited about. Jesus is coming again. But there's one more event that will take place when he comes. Notice it. And that is the gathering of the elect. And let me tell you, when that happens, it will be a magnificent to be a part of a magnificent sight the gathering of the elect you see christ's return is not only a day of judgment listen it is that glorious day when christ will send his angels to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth and all israel will be saved as paul says in romans 11 26 look what jesus says now in matthew 24 verse 31 I think this is one of the most awesome verses in the Bible. It says, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. You see, for the wicked of the earth, for unbelievers, Christ's coming will mean final judgment. But for the elect, man, it will mean the consummation of their redemption. Now the question becomes, well, who are the elect? Well, the elect are people chosen by God for salvation. Listen, one of the most precious promises, one of the most precious truths of the Bible, and yes, I will admit, one of the most difficult truths to comprehend in my human mind is that God in His grace, God in His mercy, has, according to Ephesians 1.4, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Whoa! Now that's a great truth to take comfort in if you are part of the elect. And let me tell you, if you are a believer here this morning, you are part of God's elect. You have been chosen by God. Listen, He has chosen you before the foundation of the world. He's chosen you for salvation. And because of His choosing, you respond to His grace with faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. You know what this means? It means God chooses who will be saved throughout history. It also means our eternal salvation is ultimately dependent on God's sovereignty upon His choosing. I don't understand. It blows my mind. But let me tell you, I take comfort in that truth. That God's grace came on me. And in His mercy, He chose me before the foundation of the world. And in His grace and mercy, in faith, I responded. Awesome. Now, the elect, in this context of Matthew 24 here, are gathered at Christ's return, are tribulation believers. 
plus all the Old Testament believers who are raised from the dead. And Jesus says they are gathered together and they are brought into the millennial kingdom Christ will establish on the earth along with you and I already raised and raptured believers of the church age. And let me tell you, oh, what a day that will be. Victory at last. Wow. And again, I hope you're looking forward to that day when Christ returns. Now, once Christ has finished giving His disciples the final great sign of His return, it's interesting. He wastes no time. I mean, He wastes no time about talking about the millennium and what happens after that. He doesn't say one iota about the millennial reign and kingdom in this passage. He, so he, once he, he gives, finished giving his disciples his final great sign, he immediately launches into this great parable, a brief parable to underscore the lesson he has been teaching them in the previous verses. And so we learn now, anticipate the phenomenon of the second coming of Christ, but also, number two, learn the parable of the fig tree. Learn the parable of the fig tree. Notice what Jesus says in verses 32 and 33. He says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. Now that seems easy enough to understand, right? What does that mean? In other words, seek to understand, seek to apply to your life the simple story with the spiritual truth that Jesus is getting ready to share with us. That's what a parable is, simple story with a spiritual truth. So what is this parable or simple story of the fig tree? Well, Jesus now explains what it is. Look at it. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, all what? What are these things referring to? All the signs of Christ's coming. Know that it is near at the very doors. Now a fig tree. How many know what a fig tree is? How many have a fig tree in their yard? I didn't think so. So here's a picture of a fig tree. Give you an idea. A fig tree was and still is a common sight in the Middle East, in Palestine. So the disciples, let me tell you, and even a child would have understood this illustration from nature that Jesus is now giving them. They would have easily understood it. Basically, when a fig tree starts to bud and the leaves begin to grow, that's a sure sign of what? Summer is coming. Listen, do we not already understand that? We are in what season? Spring. How many have maple trees? How many have tons of helicopters coming down from them? Littering your driveway, sidewalk, porch, deck. My wife has now swept our deck, I think, five times. I keep telling her, Darla, just let, forget about it, and just let all the helicopters fall down till they're done, and then sweep them, instead of doing it every day. But she doesn't listen to me, and that's the way she is. And I love her for it. But you know what? Every year when those helicopters come, we, we understand something. It's the law of nature. It's an illustration from nature. When the trees begin to bud and the leaves begin to come on, what's right around the corner? Summer! And we all say, yay! And the kids are in school say, yay! And all the parents go, boo! <laughs> Listen, it might be several weeks, it might be a few months, but the buds and leaves mean that summer is coming soon. 
And in the same way, the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation will be preceded by a whole series of signs. And those signs, which Jesus has just finished describing, will be so strikingly obvious that they can't be missed. In fact, Jesus says the very last sign, he, His coming, the one sign, the final sign, will be visible and obvious to all. Nobody will miss it. In other words, when you see these signs, mark it down. The coming of Christ, as Jesus says, is near right at the door. Now, out of this lesson from nature, this illustration from nature, I think we can draw two lessons for you and I, two applicational points that we can walk away with even today. The first lesson is this. You can trust in the certain return of Jesus Christ. You can trust, mark it down, bank on it. You can trust in the certain return of Jesus Christ. Listen, and why not? The illustration, just as you can trust in the laws of nature. Nobody questions what's right around the corner here in the Midwest because we now see the leaves on the tree. What's around the corner? Summer. Nobody questions that. We, we trust that. It's a law of nature. And just as you trust in the laws of nature, Jesus is saying to us, you can trust in my return. Mark it down. It's going to happen. Just as summer follows spring. And then Jesus adds this statement in verse 34. Look what he says. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Now, Jesus is making a promise to, quote, this generation. And, of course, the question is, well, what generation is he referring to? What generation is he talking about? I personally don't believe that it's referring to the very first generation that Jesus was speaking to in this day and age, to the disciples' generation that heard Christ's words because the signs he spoke about were not ultimately fulfilled in their generation though some of them were partially fulfilled. So I believe this generation refers to the generation living at the end of the age when the signs Jesus predicted begin to unfold. This generation that sees the start of the tribulation will be the one that sees the fulfillment of all the things Christ predicted. In other words, so when the birth pain signs begin when that is confirmed by this abomination of desolation we learned about last Sunday and gives way to the trials of the great tribulation, when you see all these things, as Jesus said, you can be certain that Christ's return is near. So the lesson is pretty simple. Even a child can tell by looking at a fig tree that the coming of summer is a sure thing. Likewise, the generation that sees all these signs come to pass will know with certainty that Christ's return is near. So, here's the question, though, for you and I. If the rapture takes place before the tribulation, then that means we won't be part of the generation that sees all these signs ultimately fulfilled during the tribulation. So how can we be so sure Jesus is coming again? Listen, you can trust 
You can trust in the certain return of Jesus Christ because of the second lesson we learned. You can trust in the sure word of Jesus Christ. Look what Jesus says in verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by, will by no means pass away. Here is a wonderful guarantee Jesus gives to every generation. And the first guarantee he gives us is this universe that we are a part of, that we're living in, will be do what? It will one day pass away. Contrary to the speculations of many scientists, let me tell you, the universe had a definite beginning, and it will have a definite ending. It exists because God called it into being, Genesis chapter 1, and it will pass away whenever God says the word. So the first guarantee he gives to every generation is, listen, this heaven, this earth, what we're a part of, it will one day pass away. So go ahead, build your dream home. Just do so with the understanding it will not last for eternity. It's going to pass away. Bank on some of the things that we see visually with our eyes. That precious car of yours. Whatever material thing you hold of value. Listen, not that those things are wrong, but understand. It is about that length of time. And then it will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. Mark it down. But now he gives us a second guarantee. He says, listen, the words of Christ, though, will what? Stand forever. They will not pass away. Listen, no matter how bleak things may look in our world, no matter how bleak things will become during the tribulation, Christ will return just as He promised. In fact, the promises of Jesus, listen to me on this, this will blow your mind, are so trustworthy that it's better to doubt the laws of nature than the words of Christ. That's the point He is making. And we don't doubt the laws of nature, do we? There isn't a person here that looks out their window or will drive home this afternoon and look around and say, nope, summer's not coming. It's wintertime. Somebody told us that, we'd say they're loony. They're crazy. We don't even blink twice. We don't think twice about that. We don't doubt it. And yet Jesus' words are so trustworthy that you're better off to doubt the laws of nature than the very words of Jesus Christ. It is better to believe that the sun and moon have fallen from the sky than to doubt the words of Christ. And so when everything else in this world is letting you down, let me tell you, these last 18 months, how secure has your job been? How secure has your full retirement been? How secure has anything been? What about the relationships and whatnot, human beings letting you down? And so when everything else in this world is letting you down, listen, Jesus comes along and he is telling us, listen, you can trust in the sure word of Jesus Christ. And that sure word in this context is, he is coming again. Mark it down. 
Now, there's a theological term that theologians use to describe the coming of Christ. They say his coming is imminent. We'll look at this a little more next Sunday. And that word imminent, all it means is at any moment. So when we say that Christ's coming could happen at any moment, we mean that his coming is always possible in every generation and never impossible in any generation. Jesus is coming. He may come soon, and he could come today. And the question this morning is, are you ready? Are you ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Listen, don't be caught unprepared. Don't be caught ashamed. Trust Jesus as your Savior. And then get serious about living for him while we wait for his soon return. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. That much is certain. Christ said it. We can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. We don't know the precise time, but it may be soon or it may not be for another hundred years. But one of these days, let me tell you, the sky is going to split open and Jesus will come again. And the question for you and I this morning is, are we ready? Are we ready? Reminds me of the illustration, the story. Down at a country store somewhere in the deep south, a, a few raggedy bunch of boys had draped themselves over the front porch rail to sip some cola, Coca-Cola, and razz the people passing by. When up came an older woman named Ms. Bessie. Ms. Bessie, a fine, stout Christian woman, nursed through the years by the good book, fried chicken, and sensible living. She stopped, sized up the smirking boys through her bifocals, and climbed the stairs to tend to her shopping. Preacher says, Jesus is coming soon, Miss Bessie, called one fellow through grinning eyes. You believe Jesus is coming soon, Miss Bessie? Taunted another, holding in a snicker like steam in the belly of a stove. Flashing a glance at the boy, she straightened her shoulders. I do indeed. Sure as you was born, she said. They pressed her. Well, ain't you better hurry home and get ready. Jesus might be on his way from glory right now. Having just stepped inside the store, she turned and stared into their mocking eyes. You all listen here, she said slowly. I don't have to get ready. I keeps ready. I keeps ready. That's a great answer for you and I this morning. But it begs a penetrating question. Do you keeps ready? Jesus is coming soon. And like Miss Bessie, are you living as if Jesus might burst through the heaven's doors at any moment? Listen, don't be caught unprepared. Don't be caught ashamed as a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, then let me encourage you this morning to run to the cross. Lay your sins on Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty for you. And trust Him as your Savior and Lord. And then get serious about living for Him. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You this morning. And we thank You for the words of Your Son, Jesus Christ, that He gave these disciples. 
Lord, we thank You that we can trust in Your Word, Your sure Word, and that You are coming soon. Lord, we look forward to that. But the challenge for us today is to be ready and to keep ready. And Lord, we need Your grace for that. We need Your strength. We need Your perspective. In fact, perhaps there's one here, two, three, a handful of people who are not ready because they're unprepared and they are not a believer in You. They have yet to receive Your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior and Lord. God, I pray that You would convict them. I pray You would open their eyes and their heart to You and You would draw them to Your Son, Jesus Christ. And You would give them the faith to confess You as their Lord. That they would ask for the forgiveness of sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross in paying the penalty of their sins. And then invite Jesus into their heart and live for Him. But Lord, I know most of us are believers here already this morning. And our challenge is to not be caught ashamed in how we're living. And so, Lord, I ask that through your Spirit, you would open up our hearts to areas of our life that perhaps, probably more than likely, are hidden from other Christians. But, Lord, they're not hidden from you. You see all things. You know all things. And so, Lord, as we have a, a, a song and a response time, I pray that we would respond. We would do business with you, either for the first time, because we have yet to receive you, or to come to you as your child and to receive forgiveness all over again. I pray these things in your son's name. As the praise team sings, I invite you to respond to the leading of God in your heart. We're going to sing just one chorus, and then we'll be done. Thank you for the call.